Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number nine. Change what your listeners think sales is. So, if I could give a new definition, sales for me is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everyone. It is Jay Scott here. I am your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast this week, and I am here with my lovely co-host, Mrs. Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol? I am doing great, honey. Thank you. But I'm not going to take up this whole intro for once. I want you, please, to tell everybody about an awesome new feature on BiggerPockets.com. Yes. So here on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, we don't typically talk about all the resources available on BiggerPockets.com because we know that not all of our audience are involved in real estate. But for those of you who are in real estate, we have a great tip and a great new service today from BiggerPockets.com. BiggerPockets now has what they call the premium membership. So what does that mean? Well, if you're a real estate agent, a hard money lender, or an investor with your own company, this is a great way for you to better network and generate more leads for your business. Basically, it's a way for you to set yourself apart and connect directly with all the potential people on the site who could potentially become your customers for your real estate business. It's a powerful lead source, and it's just a great way for you to expand your business on biggerpockets.com. So if you're curious to hear more about the premium membership, this is what you need to do. Head over to biggerpockets.com slash premium. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash premium. And if you're on the Bigger Pockets forums, biggerpockets.com slash forums. If you're on the forums, there should be a thread where we break down all the benefits you'll get from about Bigger Pockets Premium and get answers to any questions you might have. So go check out biggerpockets.com slash premium and check out the forum thread all about the premium membership. Awesome. Thank you, honey. That does sound like a really great opportunity for anybody in the real estate industry who wants to generate more business. So thank you for sharing that. Now, listeners, you are going to absolutely love, 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 love today's guest. Okay. We have a man named Alan Donegan. He is the co-founder of Pop-Up Business School, which is a training company based out of the UK, and they have workshops around the globe. So let's say you don't have any time, you don't have any money, and you really don't want to take a big risk, but you do want to start a business. Well, guess what? Alan is going to give you a step-by-step process on how to do just that. And he really focuses on something called a mini experiment. So make sure you listen all the way through. He's going to give you lots of great tips. Guess what? He's also going to remind us that you truly do not need a formal education to be a successful entrepreneur. He's also going to tell us about something called the Trinity of Management. And these are three things, three crucial things that you need to be a successful entrepreneur. And make sure you listen all the way to the end because Alan tells us the one skill every aspiring entrepreneur needs and the one skill every aspiring entrepreneur should be focused on to build their successful business. 
right. He it's really truly just focuses all on one. It boils down to one thing that is the most important. Okay. Now, if you want to learn more about Alan, if you want to find the links to the things we discuss in the show, or if you just want to get more information about the things we talk about in the show, make sure you check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash biz show nine. Again, our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash biz show nine. Let's jump into our show with Alan. Okay. Let's welcome Alan to the show. How are you doing today, Alan? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. It's raining in Basingstoke in England. Ah, that's right. You're across the pond. I am indeed. Yes. I'm dying to get back for better weather. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Thanks so much for being on with us today. I know our listeners are going to absolutely love everything you have to share with them. So thank you for joining us. So Alan, you run a business or a school, I guess both, called Pop-Up Business School. And I would really love to find out a little bit more about what Pop-Up Business School is. And I'd also like to find out what led you to start this thing that you call Pop-Up Business School. So can you take us back a little bit and talk a little bit about where you came from and what led you to start this education, this school, this business education school for new entrepreneurs? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, to tell you where we are today, we travel around the world and we help people to build businesses without spending any money. Last year, we ran 44 events and helped 2,300 people. And it basically all started from the British government's inability to help me start a business. Hmm. So so jumping back a little bit, first you said help entrepreneurs start businesses without any money. Do you mean that they can attend your school without any money or they can start their businesses without any money or both? Both. So the courses are free. No one's ever paid to come on any of our workshops. And we don't believe it takes money to make money. We think you can get going without that. I love that. That is gold right there. So you do this in England, I presume. Do you ever travel to the States and, and do any of your workshops in the States as well? Yes, we had uh, one in Colorado last year. We did one in Houston. I think there'll be one in Ind- Indianapolis uh, and Charleston as well coming up. We did six last year in New Zealand. We had one in France. So the course has just been translated into French. Uh, and I'm flying to Morocco in about a week or two's time for the launch in Arabic. That is wow. awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, so tell us how you how you came to become an entrepreneur yourself and, and how you came to start the Pop-Up Business School. Uh, how did I become an entrepreneur myself? I think many years ago when I was a lot younger, my dad stopped giving me pocket money because his business had gone bankrupt and he didn't have any money. But he said instead, I could make my own money. And he was running a sportswear business at the time. And he said, you can't have pocket money, but you can take the shorts, T-shirts and different things. I'll give you one price and then you can sell them for anything you want over that at school. So you can't have pocket money, but you can go and make your own money. And that inspired me. Like cash is good for buying sweets and pizza and food. (laughs) Uh, And that's what I needed as a kid. How old were you when you did that, when your dad gave you your sportswear and you started reselling for a profit? I think I was very reticent to do it. I think he might have started offering it 15, 16, but I had a lot of hang-ups over it. Uh, I only really got into it at 17. Um, And some months at college, I made more money than I did when I had a proper job later on. 
Wow. Right off the bat, you figure that out. <laughs> yes. Sales first. So what was the next step? So I assume that didn't turn into a big enterprise. Maybe it did. But I think listening to your story on, on The Money Show, um, it sounds like that wasn't your your big enterprise. That was just kind of a stepping stone to the next several things that you did. So what was next in your evolution as an entrepreneur? Uh, what happened next was I was working in the family business, but it's not a good time when your parents are getting divorced and they have financial problems. So I got out of that quickly. And my granny was very keen on me getting a solid job. So I got a solid job and I hated it. Uh, and I did telesales. Then I did field sales selling photocopiers. I struggled to get passionate about photocopiers. Why? <laughs> it sounds fascinating. Photocopying. I mean, what more could you ask out of life? If there's a stapler and a double-sided, maybe. <laughs> And then I I did recruitment, I did kids after school parties, I ran a pub, I did landscape gardening, grounds maintenance, plus lots of other jobs. I tried everything before I finally got fired, which I've signed a document that says I can't tell you why I got fired. Um, and then couldn't find a job I actually wanted to do. So decided I would start my own business. And that's kind of how we ended up here. But it took a long time, a lot of pain and a lot of different jobs to make that decision. I guess so. It sounds like you went, your your journey was very roundabout. You went from one job to another to another. And it sounds like nothing that you are exceptionally passionate about or engaged in. So then you decided, well, let's start this pop-up business school. Is that the idea? And, and how did that come to fruition? Actually, the first business I started was a training business. Okay. Uh, so I ran training courses for big corporates. I taught them how to present, influence, speak. One of my favorite stories is I taught Microsoft how to use PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, and then that just built a training business. And the sort of genesis of starting that business and going to the British government for support with that and another couple of business ideas, that was the experience that they did more to put me off starting a business than they did to actually help me. Uh, they told me to write a business plan. They told me to get a loan. They told me to go into debt. They put so many barriers in my way to getting going uh, that I nearly had a meltdown at that point and believed I couldn't actually do it. And it took a long time to come back from that and get over it. And that experience of believing that I couldn't do it, that I needed all this other stuff to start up, was what then inspired Pop-Up Business School. It was my search for there must be a better way to do it than the traditional way to start a business. There must be a better way. Yeah, I love that. Um, I know that any of us that have tried this entrepreneurship thing and any of us that are going to in the future are going to experience that that letdown of something's not going right. We hit obstacles that are just so hard to overcome. And a lot of times it can take one or two or five or 50 efforts before something actually works out. And part of being a successful entrepreneur is just not giving up, just going back. If it fails once, do it a second time. If it fails five times, do it a six. If it fails 20 times, do it a 21st. And so it sounds like you had that failure early on, but um, you you got back up and, and you said, hey, not only am I going to figure out how to do it, but I'm going to think about the process as well. So 
you started Pop-Up Business School. Can you tell us a little bit about what your goals were with it? Like, did were you thinking about, I want to figure out how I can start a business or I want to help other people start businesses? What what what, what was the, the origin of Pop-Up Business School? Uh, my number one goal, and it, it still is, is to change the way entrepreneurship and startup is taught. Because... Like in nearly all places, they teach you to write business plans, debt, loans, all of that stuff. And it does more to put people off than it does to help them. And I want to find a way to help people get going without debt, without risk and doing it quickly so they can actually make money doing something they love. And actually, like the whole business is was in revolt against that traditional methodology uh, and still is. And we still, to this day, fight the traditional enterprise educators in England uh, who like to throw rocks at us and cause problems because we come along and say it should be done differently and take some of their funding, which they don't like. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and you experienced it firsthand, it sounds like, right? You had your training company that was doing well. You taught, like you said, you taught Microsoft how to use its own product, which is hilarious. And it sounded like they were a big old barrier and you wanted to remove that barrier for yourself as well as other entrepreneurs. So how did you go about doing that first session? Or you're talking about this whole self-funding and and just going out and doing it. How did that first session or that first class or recruiting the first people for your pop-up business school? How did that come about? (laughs) So I had this idea that we could do it. Originally, I wanted to start a complete business school, a big business school. But to start a business school, you need a big building. You need a lot of money. You really probably do need a loan if you're building a big business school. So I took my own advice and said, well, why didn't I do a pop-up version? Uh, And who could we do it for? And you start thinking who would pay for it? How would it work? And I just went and pitched it. I had a client on the presentation skills business, which was a housing association. And I just went to them and said, here, I've got this idea. I think I could help your residents who live in your houses to start businesses and make their own income. Would you be interested? They said yes. So I wrote a proposal. We agreed a date. I asked Michael Williams, who was the guy I pitched it to, I asked him for the money up front. That was a bit unusual. I think he felt a bit uncomfortable being asked for the money up front, but actually he wanted to get out of the budget before the end of the financial year. Perfect. Good timing. So we got paid six months before we ran the event. And that was the money I used to set things up. And we borrowed a building. We borrowed chairs from a local church. We scrounged everything. I borrowed a projector. I painted the wall white so we had a screen. We just made it happen from nothing. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit of there's nothing here at the moment, but I'm just going to make it happen. I think that's what's missing because people think they need to buy stuff to start. But yeah, we just made it happen from nothing. Uh, I pitched the idea, I sold the idea, and then we created it. That's really cool. So you, 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 first of all, you got paid up front, which is awesome in and of itself. And then you borrowed you basically back borrowed and stole everything that you needed to make it happen rather than doing it in a more traditional sense. Um, can I ask a question? So why did, I believe you said the name is Michael Williams, the person who you pitched it to. Why did he think it was okay to pay you six months in advance before you even delivered the product? Just curious. So I had a little bit of trust built up because I'd already done some presentation skills training for the business. Not 
yeah, I'd already done a little bit of it. So they at least knew me and I turned up at their building and I wasn't starting from zero. But I think the thing there is it's trust. If someone trusts you, I always say on the courses, if you've got a low trust environment, you need a big contract because they want to tie you down. They want to pin you down. If you've got a high trust environment, you need a very small contract, which can be as much as an email or a shaking of hands. And we had trust. We had trust. I wanted to do it. He could tell I wanted to do it. He genuinely wanted to help his residents. And I think that foundation of trust is what allowed us to make that first one happen. Without trust, it never would have launched. Excellent. So trust is paramount in this whole situation. So the typical idea that most people have when they think of entrepreneurship, they think, okay, like you said, let's go out. I have an idea for a business. I'm going to write a business plan. I'm going to go pitch it to investors. I'm going to raise money from angel investors or venture capitalists. I'm going to go out and get a building, hire employees, buy a lot of equipment. And in 10 years, I'm going to be a billionaire. And as we know, that often doesn't play out that way. And it sounds like what you espouse in Pop-Up Business School is a different methodology for starting a business. So can you give us a relatively quick overview of how your idea of how to start a business differs from that more traditional idea that a lot of entrepreneurs or wannabe entrepreneurs have? Well, I guess the first part of that is let's unpack what business actually means, because it's such a nebulous word. Business could mean Google with thousands of employees in a massive business, or business could mean a one-man carpenter making tables from his garage. And I think when you type in how to start a business, there are inbuilt assumptions into that question and the answers that you find on Google and online that say business should equal something that's scalable, something that makes profit, something that you're building to sell. But that's not what everyone wants. So I think before you even get to how do you start a business, it's what kind of thing are you creating? Are you building something to make money around the kids? Are you building something because you want to make a difference in the world? Are you building something to make money? Any of those answers are fine. But until we know that, how can you recommend a standard way of starting a business for everyone? That's great. Okay, so let's jump into some specifics here. So let's say I want to start a business. Let's say I want to start what I think is often referred to as a lifestyle business. I don't necessarily want to be a billionaire or a hundred millionaire or even a 10 millionaire. I basically want to make enough income that I can focus on my family, I can focus on my personal life, but I can also support my family and I can also have income coming in. So what are kind of the first steps for me to figure out, okay, what is the right business for me? What should I be doing? How do I find that business idea? How do I vet that business idea? How do I decide? Like, what's the first step? So for me, the first step is absolutely the mini experiment. And the mini experiment says, let's test it. Let's see if it works. Because I think lots of people, and I remember some friends of mine saying this, that they wanted to uh, run a wine bar and they wanted to launch a wine bar. But when they started doing it, they started thinking, well, we're going to have to borrow lots of money. We need a building. And then we're going to have to start working weekends. And then actually, then after thinking that all through, they went, why are we launching a wine bar? It's because actually we want to drink wine with our friends. (laughs) 
Well, if that's your goal, it's going to be far cheaper and easier to buy a bottle of wine or go to a <laughs> wine bar uh, than it is start one. So like, thinking through that before you even start is worth it. And then why not do a mini experiment? So if you were starting a wine bar, could we find a venue that would lend us a space? Could we sell tickets up front to a wine tasting evening? Could we invite people? Could we do a mini experiment and run one evening and see if it works? And if we like it, and if the customers like it, and if we make money, and if we do, then scale it. But if you do it the other way around and you borrow all the cash and build the building first and you don't actually enjoy running it, you've got yourself stuck. I love that. So so basically figure out a way that you can verify that you have customers before you ever spend a ton of time and money on building the product. Absolutely. Because like, so what's the only way to know if your business will succeed or not? The only way. Uh, if you... Uh, have money coming in. Yeah, someone gives you money for it. But if you go on, so I Googled just before the interview, like, how do you start a business? And nearly all of them recommend market research. Now, I have a slight challenge with market research. For me, what that means is you go out and you see people in the street with their clipboards and they ask you questions, you know, would you pay this for this? And do you like this? And you'll get some ideas from people. But especially in a British culture, I mean, even in American culture, people will be nice to you. They don't want to offend your feelings about your business idea. Most people take business research to go and see their friends and they go and see their friends. Imagine I had, um, imagine I've got a new mobile phone case design. And Carol, could you pretend to be my friend for this bit? Oh, I would love to be your friend. (laughs) You could reject me again afterwards. Um, (laughs) I come to Carol and I say, Carol, I've got this new mobile phone case, uh, brand new design. It'll help make your phone sound louder. It'll help protect it. What do you think? It's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Let me, let me feel that in my hand. That feels really smooth and it fits in my hand nicely. What's going to happen when I drop it? Will it be okay? Uh, I'm not going to try it, Carol. (laughs) Um, Carol, you but it's a, a beautiful friend. phone case. You've done a great job designing that phone case. And is that good feedback? No, I just like you. You're my buddy. And I want to tell you your phone case was cool. No offense. And what you should do at that point is when Carol says it's nice, is say, Carol, actually, it's 40 bucks. Would you like to buy one? Um, right now? Yes. Well, I don't have any cash on me, but um, how about I'll get back in touch with you later? (laughs) There's the real feedback. Um, People will be nice to you up until the point you ask them to take their money out of their pocket. Uh, At the point you ask them to take money out of their pocket, they will give you the real feedback. So my personal opinion is skip everything that comes before, pitch them the idea and ask them to buy because that is the only moment of truth when you know your business will be successful or not. That's a, that is such a gold nugget right there, isn't it, Jay? Right? I, if someone I, right up right off the bat is willing to pay for it, you know it's you know it's what you need to be doing. That that is great. I'll tell you. So your answer about your mini experiment idea it it it's great, and it reminds me of a story that I haven't heard in a few years, but used to be talked about a lot. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, which is now the 
largest business in the entire world. The way he started was exactly what you suggested as a mini experiment. So a lot of us probably think, okay, he started Amazon.com. He probably bought a ton of books and inventory, started marketing, whatever. In actuality, what Jeff Bezos did when he started Amazon was he went out, he put up this website, this Amazon.com website. He didn't buy any inventory. He owned no books whatsoever. He listed a bunch of books on the website. And when he got his first order, he took the money from that order. He went out, he bought the book and shipped it. And he did that with the second and the third and the 10th and the thousandth book as well. And it wasn't until he had sold a couple thousand books that he said, okay, I can make this work. And he actually went out and started buying inventory. So he was literally taking orders, turning around, buying the, the, the books after he got the orders and shipped them out as if they were coming from him. So, I mean, if, if, this is, if this is something that can work for literally the biggest company on the planet, it can work for all of us. That's exactly how Richard Branson started Virgin Records, is he put an advert out there. People sent him in checks back in the days when checks existed. I don't know if you'll listen or know about those, but he would collect the checks, bank the money, and then go to the local record store and buy the records to ship out. You can do a mini experiment. It doesn't cost you any money to test these ideas and see if someone wants to buy it. And I don't really care what it is. There's a way to pre-sell, test, find someone who will give you cash right up front. If you work hard enough, you're going to find the right person or you won't. And I guess that is, that's important too, right? If nobody's going to, what's that telling you? That maybe it just isn't the right thing to be doing. So that's great. If you've asked a thousand people and every single one of them has said you're crazy and they wouldn't give you money, that's some fairly strong market feedback. But then you do have to have actually asked for the money. And if you've asked a thousand of your customers and everyone has said, there's no way I'll pay for this. That's feedback you're going to have to listen to because you've actually asked for cash. There you go. That's reality. That's great. Okay. So you now have an idea and you've validated your idea. You've, you've asked people, either your friends or your not friends. You've gone out and you sub, you've solicited customers and, and they've either sent you money or offered to send you money. What is the next step now that you know that you have a potentially viable business, but you haven't really yet started to build the business? What's the next step? You've got to deliver what you sold. <laughs> and that definitely depends on what it is you've sold, whether it's a training course, whether it's a CD. CD? How old school am I? Whether it's some digital <laughs> music. Um, it, it depends what you've sold, but we've got to go back and deliver what we've sold, which then, see, this is the bit I really like, is because we've gone step one sales, step two, deliver the product or service, and we've gone straight into the heart of doing it. What we haven't done is what you would do traditionally, which is build the LLC, build all the companies, do all the uh, business bank accounts, everything else. You've tested the idea without wasting any time. And that first round of delivering the product or service is going to give you all the feedback you need to see if it works or not, and if you want to do it. So what you're saying is we should actually try and make a little bit of money and find some customers before we get our business cards printed. (laughs) I'm saying don't bother with business cards. (laughs) I find it fascinating. So I Googled how to start a business before we came on the call. The top article is from entrepreneur.com. It it had 12 steps to starting a business. What step do you think sales is? (laughs) Number 12, probably. Yeah, it's number 11. What a shame. 
everything first. Uh, and actually, you go down all of these different ones that I found on there. They all talk about everything else other than creating sales first. There's statements like, most businesses require some source of funding to start. Uh, and then it goes, before you can start generating any revenue or making purchases, you're going to need to open a business bank account. And there's all this crap online that tells you you need to do all this stuff first. And it's completely not true. Sell it. See if you enjoy doing it. Deliver the product or service. See if the customers like it. If they do, then we can figure out how to do all this stuff. Uh, and I'll tell you what, you will get motivation to figure out all that stuff if you have a customer waiting. If you don't have any customer waiting, where's your motivation? Yeah, this, and, and I'll tell you, the, the other, the, the big benefit here, there's a saying that I've always loved in business, which is fail fast. If you have something that's not going to work, don't take six months or a year or five years to figure out it's not going to work. Figure out it's not going to work quickly and move on to the next idea. And because if, if you're going to fail five or 10 or 20 times before you find that idea that's going to work, you'd rather those five or 10 or 20 times be, be each very quickly than spend a year or two and, 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 and take a year or two to fail those 20 times. Yes, and I'd love to add to that. The expression we use at the Pop-Up Business School is fail fast and fail cheap. Hmm. Love if it. it's going to go wrong, make it go wrong quickly and without going into debt. Um, this, the antithesis of what most people do is they spend months organizing bank accounts and business names and websites and stuff, and they borrowed lots of money and that's failing slowly and failing expensively if you're going to fail. I, I, I am very much against debt to startups. I think there might be a case for growth loans at different points, but for startups, get that product out there without any debt and see if it works or not. Excellent. Before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online cutting-edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Fundrise, that's no longer the case. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry, thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple and usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest with Fundrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. Now that's the future of real estate investing. So are you ready to get started? Then visit Fundrise.com slash BP business. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash BP business. And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's fundrise.com slash BP business. Small business owners wear a lot of hats. And while some hats are really great, others like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, yeah, not so great. So that's where Gusto comes in. 
Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can even get direct access to certified HR experts too. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. You can do it in less than 10 minutes. And if you're thinking, oh, I already work with tools like say QuickBooks, well, get this. Gusto can integrate with those platforms so you can keep everything in one place all online. So listen up for this offer. Because you listen to Bigger Pockets Business, you get three months free when you run your first payroll on Gusto. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash BPB, like Bigger Pockets Business. Again, that's gusto.com slash BPB. So to recap, we're talking about your first step is the mini experiment. The second step is to actually deliver that product. And maybe a kind of a step 2A is to get feedback after you deliver that product to make sure that it's what you want to be doing and that the customers like it. And then I would suspect tweak is necessary after you deliver, correct? So let's say we didn't fail fast. And let's say I do enjoy doing this. And let's say my customers really do like the product. What's the next step from there? I mean, we, you know, I would say there are probably more customers who want the product. Do we continue asking for money up front? Or at, at which point do we decide it makes sense to go out and find money? Like, what is the next step after that? So the, there is some legal bits that you have to do. So if you've run your mini experiment, if it's gone well, if you've made some money, then probably we're going to have to actually get in and start the business which then we're starting to talk about which company structure are you going to be? How are you going to set it up? You know, there's some, you can find detailed information about that online. That's the fairly easy bit. It's not simple, but it's fairly easy to work it through and have a look at it. One of the things you said was, when should I stop asking for money up front? Mm-hmm. My question would be, why do you need to stop That's a good point. If they're willing to give it to you, why wouldn't you keep asking? That's true. And so I think one of the differences between the business that I run now and what other people I've seen run businesses do is my particular business, I run it pretty much like I do my household. So my business is a saver. I don't think most businesses even understand the concept of saving. I don't think most people even understand the concept of saving in their personal life. But we put aside our profit and we don't spend it all. And then if we want to expand, we've got a chunk of cash that sat there from the work we've done to be able to grow. The antithesis is what I've seen happen. So I was chatting to a really nice lady. Uh, She was doing a candle business. Uh, She said she needed to borrow money. And I was like, why do you need to borrow money? She said, well, to buy the stock. I'm like, okay, why don't you pre-sell? She said, well, I've sold all my batch. I need to borrow money for the next batch. Like, well, what happened to the money that came in from the last batch? Well, I spent it on marketing. I spent it on this. I spent it on that. But she'd never saved any percentage of it to reinvest in the stock for the next time. And I think nearly all people, they like, they see the profit as theirs. 
I want you to stop seeing the profit as yours and start seeing the profit as savings that you might need some to live off and it should be earning you money, absolutely. And you should be saving for the next growth of your business, the next investment, where you're going to go with what you're doing. So we've never, in pop-up business school, we've grown a multi-million pound business and we've never had to borrow any money. Uh, We've always done it from saving, investing, saving, investing. Uh, And I think that's a far safer way to build a business. Okay, so from what I'm hearing, and, and this is actually a good lead into what I wanted to ask next, if we're going to be saving money from the income that we're generating in the business and we're not going to be paying ourselves a lot of that money um, and taking it out of the business, in theory, we can't necessarily live off that business at the beginning. Hopefully, it gets to the point where we can, but that implies to me that a lot of us should be starting businesses not necessarily full-time if we don't have the ability to to go a long period of time without income, um, but maybe we should be starting these businesses part-time in our spare time. Is that something that you espouse? I absolutely believe in doing the mini experiments around other things. Absolutely. I think there's several bits to that. The first one is, if you're thinking about starting a business, how much runway how much spare cash do you have to be able to live before it goes into crisis mode? So have you got 12 months of savings? Have you got 18 months of savings? What's your plan? Part two is you should be earning money to pay yourself and save. Like We should be building a business to make money. So when I build my training business, you can sell training courses for a reasonable amount of money uh, between I don't know, a thousand and two thousand bucks a day for a training course. Uh, and that's a reasonable amount of money. You don't need all that to live on. So put half aside to grow the business and the other half is what you live off. And I think it's balancing those two things. I think most people go completely the other way. They launch their business, they make 10 grand and they throw a party on a Caribbean island to celebrate and blow the whole 10 grand. Uh, or they spend it all on whatever it is, you know, a nice new car or, you know, anything. I'm being a bit facetious, but they sure. spend it. There is a percentage that you save and invest, especially like every business goes through peaks and troughs and the market changes. We had one where our primary market, the British government decided to reduce funding to housing associations and overnight they killed half our business. Wow. If- if we hadn't have saved and invested, we wouldn't have survived the next six months. And I think, yeah, you do need money, you're right, to live off, Jay. But if your business is not making enough for you to live and to save a bit, something's wrong and we need to tweak it. Um, and back to your original point, do the mini experiment in your spare time, test it, see what happens. Then if you like it, if you've made money, if you've done your sums and you think it's scalable for you, whatever that means, then go all in and make it happen. But if you've never done a mini experiment, well, that's a big risk. Sure. Do you have any good rules of thumb for when a business owner can say, hey, it's time for me to quit my other job and, and kind of go full time and kind of take the risk of, of basically betting everything on this business? So are there any good rules of thumb there? So I think rules of thumb, my one is, is it providing you enough to live? So how much, this is a a question that I don't think most people will know the answer to, but how much does it cost you to live each year? Uh, And if that figure is 30 grand a year and your business is making 25 and you think by going all in, you can get over that number, then go for it. So I think expenses versus money coming in is an interesting way to look at it. 
I think the other way is how much reward am I getting for the time I'm putting in? So if I'm running it in my spare time and I'm doing 10 hours a month and I'm generating 10K, what could I actually scale it to if I went full time and would that support me? That's a great question. Yeah. The number of hours versus the income coming back, I think would be the second way I would look at it. And I think that's going to uncover all sorts of different things for you to think through as you decide whether to make the leap from employment to self-employment business or back. Great. So I'm curious, kind of taking a little bit more of a step back to, we're talking about um, doing these mini experiments around other things, often around full-time jobs and so on and so forth. And I remember before we had our own businesses, I had a pretty darn demanding job and I traveled a lot and I was just, I was tired. I was wiped out. And and I don't think I'm the only person like that that has a full-time job. So my goodness, I try, I'm sitting here thinking, wow. So Alan is sitting here telling me if I want to do something that I've got to go to work full time if I, if I need that to support myself and then still somehow have the motivation and the energy to do more. So how would you suggest people do that? Like what, what is the impetus that just makes that happen? So I guess uh, point one is people see employment as binary. It's either a one or a zero. I'm either fully employed or I'm not. There's lots of models where you can go to four days a week, three days a week to create time. It doesn't have to be one or zero. You can look at it in different ways to create time. And I do appreciate a full-time job can be exhausting and you come home after the day and you're like, I don't want to do this. (laughs) Back on the couch. I think my thought there is lots of people complain they don't have the time, but actually What I've noticed amongst the people that I've helped is it's not always that they don't have the time, it's they don't have the energy within the time they've got. Mm. So they come home and sit on the couch for an hour because they're exhausted. That's not a lack of time, that's a lack of energy. So actually, when you look at it like that, we then start to think, well, what can we do to build your energy? Uh, Do we need to look after your health? Do we need to help you get more sleep? Do we need to, what do we need to do to get you the energy to be able to do it? Because there are people out there with incredible energy that make things happen. And there are others that are exhausted all the time. Um, So my question is, is it energy? Is it time? Like what's really stopping this person from getting going? Uh, And then let's dig underneath and work out what we can actually do to build that. Yeah, that would be my thought. Yeah, that's a great mindset shift. It's a it's a really good different way of looking at it. And I want to I want to point out something you mentioned in there as well as is this whole energy thing, which is wonderful, but also thinking about what you said about looking at alternative ways of working, right? I think a lot of people are maybe nervous to ask their boss, "Can I work 4 days? Can I work 4 10-hour days, for example?" or "Can I work from home one day?" or whatever that is because, you know, we all of us here on this call and so many listening know that, you know, it's not necessarily all those hours in your office are necessarily that productive on office type of things, right? So, looking at it in a different mode might free up some time and give you more energy because you're able to be out of that typical office type of environment and build your energy for your other enterprise that might you want to be working on. I completely agree. I remember one of my first jobs. I used to come in. I used to hang around at my desk and check my emails. Then I'd go for breakfast and a coffee. Then I'd come back to my desk and hang out. Then I'd go at lunch and play soccer. Uh, (laughs) Then I'd come back to my desk and I'd do my one hour of work a day. 
Yeah. Uh, then I'd hang out at the desk and chill out and then maybe go and get a coffee with my friends. And if you looked at the productive hours, they were paying me to be there for eight hours a day, but I was doing one hour of productivity and still achieving the targets they wanted to. And I'm not saying this is everyone, but I know in my previous jobs, that actually sucked more of my energy than it helped. Sure. There's that expression of you want something done, give it to a busy person. People achieve more when they do more. And lethargy comes from lethargy. So if you're sat at work and you're wondering what to do with your life and it's sucking the energy out of you, then we need to do something about that. Maybe going to the boss and saying, I think I can be more productive if we do this change. I think I could do this. Could I work from home one day a week if I still hit my targets? There's always ways to negotiate and chat. And I think the only time you should feel nervous is if you're worried about your job because you don't think they think you do a good job, right. then you should be nervous. But if you do a good job and they like working with you, they actually want to support you. I know I want to support my team who work with me. And if they come to me with ideas, uh, I want to help them because I love working with them. Love it. So uh, a lot of times we put off starting a business because we feel like we don't have all the skills, we don't have enough knowledge, we don't have enough time. And so a lot of us decide a good solution to this is let's bring in a partner. Let's do it with somebody else or two other people or three other people. And I've personally, in my own life, I found working with partners has some benefits, but it also has some challenges and some drawbacks. So what are your thoughts on should we consider bringing in partners? When should we consider bringing in partners? How should we be consider bringing in partners? What are your, what are your thoughts on, on partnerships in general? I'll tackle that question in a few ways, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, the first one is assuming that you need all the skills before you start. So assuming you need the credibility, the, the different skills, you need all these things. That's not always true. Just as an example, I've landed some of the biggest companies in the world for corporate training. You probably shouldn't say this on air. Do you think I have a degree? I would assume so. From everything you're talking about, I would assume you had an MBA. Is that not accurate? Do you think I have any certificates? Hmm, I'm curious. Please, please share. Where are we going with this? You have no certificates, no degree? I have no degree. I have no MBA. Wow. I, I have none of that education. People assume they need that stuff to get going. Do you think any customer has said, can you show me your degree certificate? That they one, huh? They, that and, one. And they don't care if you have a great product. That's all they care about. Not a single one. And I've worked for Oxford University, Henley Business School, Microsoft, Pepsi, like the biggest organizations around the world. And not a single one has asked me for their degree. Maybe they will now. I hope they're not listening to your podcast. <laughs> I suspect they would be just as happy to keep doing what they're doing, if not even more, because you are just, you're, you are proof in the pudding that you don't need a degree. You just need to get out there, do those mini experiments, test and deliver a good product, which it sounds like you do consistently over and over, which is why they want to keep bringing you back for more and more. So if you can do it without a degree, any of our listeners can do this without a degree. They can just get out there and make it happen. And that is exactly what I believe. Like if you're out there doing it and you can prove you're good at what you do, they'll take that over a piece of paper every day. So I did have to turn up and I had to prove I was good and I had to demo it. And, you know, you have to show you're good and you've got it. But if you can do it, you don't need any of the certificates. There are obviously industries like electricians where you do need certificates. Please don't do that. (laughs) Um, 
But in general, for most businesses, you just need to get out there and show you can do it and do it really well. So going back to Jay's original question, which was partnerships, I just wanted to challenge that assumption that you need this stuff before you start, because it's not been my experience at all. The partnership bit, I think, when should you bring on partners? I think you should look at what skills do you need to operate the business. Uh, There's something called the trinities of management, which is a very posh way of saying the three things you need to actually have a successful business. And the three are the product or service, how you sell it, the sales, and then the finance and control. Those are the three main elements. So if you looked at your skills, how good are you at the product or service? How good are you at sales and marketing? And how good are you at the cash, the finance and the controls? And seeing where your skills are in those three areas. When I first started, I loved the product or service. I was shockingly bad at sales and I was okay at a spreadsheet. You know, I could manage the money okay. So I really struggled in business to get any business when I started because the sales was there. Wasn't, I couldn't do the sales. So actually, if I really evaluated myself in the cold light of day when I started, I'd be looking for someone who could help me in the sales area uh, and working out that element. So I'd look at your own skills across those three areas and see, is, where's my gaps? Do I need to partner? Should I actually learn these skills rather than partnering? Am I partnering just to avoid having to do sales? If that's the case, that's a bad excuse. And I would challenge just to think through those before you do partner. If you've got someone that you bounce off each other, you inspire, you can have open conversation, you work really well together, I think it can add a huge amount. And the pop-up business school, I started with a guy called Simon. He's my business partner. Uh, We started it together, but it didn't generate enough money quick enough to support both of us. Uh, and he got an offer. He had three kids. That changes things. Uh, he got an offer of a reasonably high paying job. So he went off to do that. And actually, I grew the pop up business school for the next four years or so until it was at a point that I could invite him back and tempt him back from his corporate job. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so sometimes you start with some, something with someone and it's having that honesty and that trust and that clear communication to saying we started it. I don't know if it'll feed us both. I don't know what will happen. Let's have a go and see where it goes and do a mini experiment. Uh, And then from that mini experiment, you can see where it goes from there. But I think, yeah, the open honesty up front of how much you're going to earn and what's going to happen and how you're going to do it is really critical with partners. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And the thing I keep hearing you saying over and over, I want to do a little side tangent here. You keep talking about sales. And I think for a lot of us, especially those of us like me who are, are, don't consider ourselves to be great salespeople, sales is often an afterthought. A lot of times we think if we build a great product, if we raise the money, if we start the LLC, if we get the business cards, if we get the office space, if we hire employees, if we do all those other things, the sales are going to come. The, the, the kind of that mentality, if you build it, they will come sort of mentality. And too often what we find is that, well, most of the time, they're not just going to come. Um, you can have the best product in the world. You can have a great team. You can have tons of money. But if people don't know about your product, if they don't understand the benefits of your product, they're not going to buy it. And, and I know this 
very well. A couple of years ago, um, and and this is hard to talk about. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine and I started a business, and we spent six figures. We spent well into the the hundreds of thousands of dollars creating a great product. It was a great product, and we had an office space, and we hired some employees. Um, but we spent about two years creating the product before we went out and started to try and sell it. And what we found was it was in a niche that we didn't have. The ability to sell it. It was it was in the the education space, and we didn't have the ins into the to the high schools and the colleges. And so ultimately, even though we had a great product, even though we spent a lot of money, even though we had the team in the office and the and and everything, we ultimately failed at this business. And looking back, had we done exactly what you recommended, had we done this mini experiment, had we focused on selling before creating. And either figuring out how to sell or deciding that we weren't going to be able to do it, not only could we have saved literally six figures of of money that we invested, but we also could have saved two years of our, our time and effort. And, and that's almost more important than saving the money. So I, I know I just belabored this point, but the fact that you keep going back to sales is something that our listeners really need to think about. Sales isn't an afterthought. It's not the second part. It's, it's really the most important part of your business. So don't wait until you do everything else to start thinking about sales. Make sure you, you do that up front. I love that, Jay. You gave me three ideas. The first was... Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams. (laughs) He lied to us. If you build it, they will come (laughs) is the biggest load of... If you build it, no one will come until you promote it and sell it. And you are so right. But I've met so many people that spend all their time going product, 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 service, service, service. And I get it. And it can work that way. But you've got to sell it and you've got to market. And if you go... I've done a lot of tendering and pitching in my day. If you go to one of these pitch fests where you get invited in and there's five companies pitching for the business, does the people with the best product win? Never. It's the people who can pitch it the best, people who can sell it the best. And if there's one skill, one skill that will help you, it's sales and pitching. If I could tell your listeners to learn and work on one thing, it would be that. The reason they don't, if I say to you, Carol and Jay and the listeners, you know, the word association game, I say a word, you say the first thing that comes to your mind. If I say salesman to you, what comes to mind? Carpet. Um, sleazy. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that around the world and people say double glazing, sleazy, pushy, and they think around the world, sales has got this really negative image. Mm. And then we're telling all of your listeners to go out there and sell, sell, sell. Well, there's some internal conflict of, I know I need to sell to launch my business, but I think it's inherently a bad thing. It's sleazy. It's this, it's cheap suits. It's that. And we actually have to unpick that to get it to work before we can even do it. So if there's one thing I'd love to do with you, it's change what your listeners think sales is. So if I could give a new definition, please. sales for me is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. That is awesome. I I like that. Sales is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. Did I I phrase that correctly? Perfect. Did I repeat it properly? I love this. I love this. 
the transfer of enthusiasm. And get enthusiastic about what we do. Let's let's go out there and enthuse other people. Find out if they've got a problem. Get enthusiastic. Work out if we can help them. Let's go out there and be enthusiastic about what we do. That's That'll get you 80, 90% of the way to the sale. And then if you learn how to close as well, <laughs> you'll be on fire. Then you're good to go. I, I love that. Yeah, I think too often we think about sales as trying to convince people to buy something that they don't really want or need. But in reality, it's just trying to convince people why they do want or they do need something or introducing them to something that once they see it, they know they're going to need. But without that introduction, they're, 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 not gonna, they're, they're never going to know about it. Absolutely. So what's the quickest way to get anyone to feel a feeling? I don't know. To go there first yourself. Ah, empathy. Uh, so if I yawn... Everyone around me yawns. Uh, if I want people to feel excited, the best way for me to do it is to be excited first. But you see these people who go out there, new entrepreneurs, and they feel like they need to be professional and serious. And so I'm going, yes, I think I've got a really good project. I'm very <laughs> excited to work with you. Uh, I think we'd make a very good team. And they just... I, f I feel the energy slipping away. Yeah, not like, feeling a lot of enthusiasm going on there. <laughs> not a lot at all. If you want people to be enthusiastic about your product, be enthusiastic. If you want them to be excited, be excited. If you want them to feel passionate, be passionate. The quickest way to get someone else to feel a feeling is to go there first. So don't hide away your feelings and pretend to be professional. Get excited, get enthusiastic, get out there into the world. That's right. Because they're going to reciprocate, right? Your customers are going to be like, I want to feel what that guy's feeling. I want a piece of that. I want to be able to have those results and experience that on a daily basis. So that will make it happen. Or if they don't, you probably don't want to work with them anyway. There you go. That's a good way to look at it. See, that's like you said, that's just an energy drainer, right? You want to surround yourself with people who, who excite you and that you can be enthusiastic with. So who is an example of somebody that has attended your pop-up business school, who has been enthusiastic, who has gotten people on board, who has had great sales, and who you consider one of your awesome success stories? Uh, there's a fabulous couple called Katie and Andrew. Um, they run time trap escape rooms in England. Ooh. Have you heard of escape room? We have escape yes. rooms here in the US. They're super fun. Oh yeah, we love I'm them. I'm really bad at them though, to be honest. I'm so <laughs> bad. I'm so bad, but they're fun. Uh, Katie and Andrew, Katie just loves games. She loves games. Her passion for the games comes through. They launched their first business as a pop-up escape room by borrowing a room in a local hotel. And they launched doing a pop-up version. They then saved enough money throughout that pop-up version to be able to get their own permanent space. And they now have three or four games in that permanent space. But they're excited about it. They're passionate about it. When you go into their place, I've played two of their three games so far. The staff are full of energy. They smile when they greet you. They want to be there. It just makes it for a lovely experience for all of you. So I think that would be an example where they've infected a lot of people with happiness and they've built a big good business doing it. 
That's great. And they did exactly what you said, right? They borrowed a space from a hotel. They went out there and did it. They saved the money that they made from it to infuse it back into the business to get that permanent space. So yeah, this whole thing is is so setting setting all of traditional business on its head. And yeah, it's it's really cool to hear. And yes, I do, honey, I'm gonna say this. I do wish we would have talked to Alan a few years ago when when you and your buddy started your product. I think it may have had a very different turn of events. And and I don't mind that you obviously I would never mind that, you know, you failed at something because it was a learning experience, but it would have been awesome for you to have been able to say you followed this different type of strategy and look at these cool different results that we had. Yeah. And, and I think the crazy thing is at the time I would have said, well, I can't think of any ways to test this. Like we have to go build the product first. But after this conversation with Alan right now, I'm, I'm sitting here realizing that there are a whole lot of things we could have done to test and, and, and to validate the idea or in, in more likely invalidate the idea before we, we jumped in for two years. So yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, just a couple of thoughts to share with you. One is a saying that I repeat constantly to the people I work with, which is start from profit, not debt. Uh, and I'd love your listeners to take that away. Start from profit, i.e. make sales, bring in money before going into debt. Um, so start from profit, not debt. The second, Jay, and I don't know if this is your experience as well, but I tried to sell a product or a, a service to education as well. Uh, it was actually my biggest, my worst year in business was spent selling to education. Fundamentally, what I found was the education in England that I was selling to, they didn't have the money for it. Yep, exactly. Uh, and I was selling to people without money, which you banging your head against a brick wall. It's a fool's errand. And one of the biggest things I learned was sell to people with cash. And it sounds obvious, but I've met so many entrepreneurs that pick target markets for their business that don't have any money and then wonder why it doesn't work. And I've done it. I've done it. Yes. Sure. We're all guilty. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's in the education space, it can be very difficult to get in front of those final decision makers, the one that do have the authority to spend the money. It can be a very long sales cycle. And again, even if you get in front of the people that that can spend the money, there's just not a whole lot of money there. So yeah, I, I again, I wish I would have talked to you a couple of years ago. <laughs> I wish I would have talked to me before I did my education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, on a more macro level for our listeners, yes, just identifying who your target market is, I guess, right? By realizing how much your product is going to cost and then going after customers who do have that amount of money or more to spend is probably going to serve you well in the long run rather than doing it the other way around where you've got this great expensive product, but the people who could actually, uh, you're the people who actually could afford it are not people who are in front of you. So like identifying that as you go very consciously. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. And one last piece on that. I think both Jay and I have learned from those experiences launching those businesses. Every business failure is a learning experience. Every right. note from a customer, every uh, feedback, it's all a learning experience. Jay sounds like it was quite an expensive learning experience, which I think is why we went back to that saying right at the beginning, fail fast, fail cheap. If it's going to go wrong, let's get it done quickly. Let's get the learning inside a month and let's do it without going into debt uh, and learn as quickly as we can. Because I launch new businesses all the time and I still don't get it right. 
Uh, and it doesn't matter how good you get, you're still going to fail. It's still going to go wrong. Do it quickly and do it cheaply. Yep. Carol, Carol and I are both big fans of, of saying failure is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We celebrate it. We absolutely celebrate failures. That's right. That's right. Okay. Alan, this has been absolutely fantastic. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to jump into the segment of our show that we call Four More. And this is where we ask you four questions. And then we end by letting you tell us more about how our listeners can find out more about you and more about what you do. You ready for that? I'm ready. Okay. I'm going to take the first one, honey. Okay. And these are rapid fire style. So don't overthink them. Just tell us the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, Alan? First one. What was your first or your worst job and what lessons did you learn from it? I think my worst job was uh, you. I used to get a strimmer, which is a machine that cuts the edges of grass and do council estates. And the worst part about that job was you would occasionally catch dog poop Ew. and the strimmer would <laughs> flick it up into Gross. your face and up your nose. That is the most disgusting job I've ever had. What did I learn from it? Don't do that. <laughs> that is amazing. That's a, that's a good learning. Very good learning. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll take the second question. So, Alan, what's an opportunity that you said no to, either in your personal life or your professional life, and looking back, was it the right decision? So, I think I said no to a whole load of opportunities back in 2014. Uh, after I got married, my wife and I decided to take a mini retirement where we had six months off for our honeymoon and went traveling. Uh, and that six months off for our honeymoon, when I got back, I had an email from British Airways asking for a training course, but it was too late. The opportunity was gone. And I said no to a whole host of opportunities, but I had life experiences. And I went out there and had an incredible time and I wouldn't change it for anything. Uh, So I think there does come a stage where experiences, opportunities, being with your family is more important than cash. Love it. Awesome. Okay. So you've given us a couple bits of that, but I'd love to hear your very worst advice that you've ever been given. The very, very worst advice you've been given and what did you do with it? The very worst advice I've been given. There's just so much bad advice. <laughs> it's hard to pick uh, one. So hard to pick one. Wait, sorry, bad advice in the business space? No. no. Can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, start with the business plan. Uh, I think it's dreadful advice. I think start with sales. I think you need to talk about funding and finance like literally going through the advice, my own advice from the British government was get your finance and your funding straight. And you look at how to start a business. And in England, when you search that, the fourth one is the startup loan company, which is a company that's trying to lend you money. And they've managed to SEO themselves up there. And I think there is some responsibility. Quick pop at Google. I love Google, but Google, come on. Your people are SEOing bad advice yeah. to the top of your searches and you're proliferating these beliefs that it takes money to make money. Google, you're doing a disservice to the people. And there's so much more bad advice from my accountant cost me 10 grand very early on. I'm so glad I have a new accountant. And you've got to double and triple check your advice and find out where it comes from. One thing I would love to say to your audience is just when you're getting business advice, be cognizant 
of what the other person gets out of offering it to you. So if it's a website, are there affiliate links? If it's a solicitor giving you advice on how to, uh, a lawyer giving you advice on how to start a business, will they earn money by writing contracts? What's their advice? If it's a bank giving you advice, how do they make money? And just think about who's giving you the advice and how they make money before they accept it. And I'm exactly the same. Judge me. How do I make my money? I make my money by going and getting sponsorships and giving my courses away for free. And I get paid more if you're successful with your business. So there's my motivation is to help you. That's different to some of the other people, but you need to be cognizant of who's offering the advice and how they get paid because there is quite often a correlation. Love that. Follow the money. Okay. I'm going to take the fourth question. What is something that you've splurged on again, either personally or professionally that, that you found to be totally worth it? Totally worth it. I did a big splurge at the beginning of this year. Uh, I've always dreamt of being a movie writer. So my splurge was to take two months off. I flew to Los Angeles because that's where you go to write a movie. Um, uh-huh. I rented uh, an expensive Airbnb right on Santa Monica Pier and wow. sat overlooking the ocean. And I wrote a movie in uh, six weeks, which I'm now wow. working to sell. But that was my splurge. That was my indulgence was to take one of my dreams and make it real. God, that is That's so cool. Awesome. We're going to have to, we're going to, I have a feeling we're going to have you back at some point in the future where we're going to talk about, uh, about your new venture as a, uh, as a movie writer and producer. I'd love that. That is super cool. Okay. Here's the last one, Alan. This is the more question. Where can our audience find out more about what you're doing and connect with you? So if they want all of the pop-up business school courses are free. So uh, just have a look on popupbusinessschool.co.uk and you can come along to a course if you'd like. There's an online startup guide on there if you want extra advice. I have recently personally launched uh, a small blog where I've shared my musings about business, uh, financial independence and being successful in life. So you can just search Alan Donegan. It's alandonegan.com. I think those are some pretty good sources of extra advice. But yeah, everything we do at Pop-Up is free. So feel free to come along to an event and to get some extra advice if you'd like it. Excellent. Thank you. Fantastic. Alan, this has been an absolute pleasure. I am quite certain that our listeners will have gotten a ton of value out of this discussion. So for anybody out there who is thinking about starting a business, is in the process of starting a business, I hope you'll take Alan's recommendations to heart and really figure out how to sell your product before you spend a lot of money building it. And I assume that you would love to hear feedback from our listeners who have used your advice and have uh, succeeded from their your advice. So uh, what's the best place to find you in terms of either social media or email? So actually, I'd like feedback no matter whether they succeed or not, Jay. I think there's as much to learn from if you've listened to my feedback and it's gone wrong, uh, listened to my ideas and it's gone wrong. There's as much to learn for all of us there. So it doesn't actually really matter what. Uh, you, they can find me on Twitter, Alan Donegan. They can find me, alandonegan.com. Send me a message there. I would love to know. So d- I'm definitely as interested in the stories where it goes wrong because every failure is a learning opportunity. Awesome. I think, I think we can leave it right with that. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you, you Alan. It was so good to chat with you. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Jay. I loved it. Wow. That was an awesome show. I love that guy. Right? 
He's so good. And seriously, I feel like anybody listening to this show today, there is absolutely no excuse for not just going out there and starting a business. I mean, he breaks it down into such simple, actionable steps, right? And you, he proves that you really don't need money. You really, truly don't. And you can borrow things and you can get money up front and you can create time and energy to make it happen. So everybody who is listening today, if you haven't already started a business, please take what Alan said to heart and figure out a way to do a mini experiment and get your gig started. And not only do you not need money, you don't need a lot of time. Like go start a business next week, Give it a try for a couple of weeks. See if you can pre-sell a product. If it doesn't work, start another one and another one and another one. And who knows, maybe you start 10 businesses over the next year. But if you do it enough times, you're going to find something that works. And that's the thing I love about his methodology is that you don't have to spend two or three or five years failing and a whole lot of money failing and and then take two decades to get to like your success. You'll get to your success in a few months. You can You can just iterate and keep doing it over and over. I agree. Love it. Let's wrap this up. All righty. Thank you for listening, everybody. She is Carol. I am Jay. Now go fail fast and fail cheap today. Have a great day, everybody. Get out there and do something awesome. Take it easy. See you, everybody. Bye. Mm -hmm.